Burkholder, I'm pastor here at Covenant Church, and I'm excited that today we start a brand new sermon series. This is the one that will lead us all the way in to Easter, and so this is your opportunity to begin to judge and vet whether this is something you actually want to invite your friends, family, neighbor, co-workers to. I think you will, uh, but for the next five weeks, we're going to be walking through step-by-step uh, step, the final steps, the final days of Jesus's life before the cross, and I think what you're going to find is this is uh, some really fertile ground, not only for us who know the story well and need to look at it with fresh eyes, but those of us who may not know the story quite as well and need to see some whole new truth in it. So the question I would ask as we start is, is this. If you could go back to any moment in history, what would it be? Have you ever been asked that question? I feel like I've gotten asked that in church just a few times. Maybe it's a church icebreaker thing that's in the manual. I didn't read the manual when I started. But if you could go back to any time in history, what would it be? And people have all kinds of good answers for this. The, the righteous among us would be like, I'd go back to the Reformation and we'd nail on the door. The, and some other people are like, you know what, I'm up for adventure and I'd be with William Wallace fighting against the English and paint my face blue. And then those people are dead now because they lost. So that's a bad idea. Um, if it was just the 20th century, you might go, I could be anywhere. I could do anything. I'd be Buzz Aldrin and I'd, I'd watch Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon. And others of you are more culturally inclined and you would go, the moon sounds nice and walking on it sounds good, but I'd be with Michael Jackson when he first did the moonwalk. And then you, you would be impressive and we'd ooh and ah at your clever turn of phrase. The reason I would ask you that this morning, where would you go back if you could go back anywhere is today we start this journey and this undeniable series we're in, we are going back. And we are actually attempting to go back in and sort of live in the presence of Christ for these days leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. We're going to actually try to get ourselves into the mindset, into the room. And to do that, we're actually going to start in a room that we were in just a few weeks ago. To close out our previous sermon series, about three weeks ago, we were uh, at, at Bethany with Mary and Lazarus. And Bethany poured out the perfume on Jesus, and, and we kind of talked about that in the, the, the way that that means we're servant-minded, and what does it look like to, to be like that? And so I'm actually going to invite you back into that same room. We're going to look at that same story again, but from a whole different angle. In one way, we're going to zoom in and see it closer, and another way, we're going to zoom out and see something entirely different. What we're going to see today is uh, we're going to watch that story. We're going to sit at Jesus' feet. We're going to learn about unconditional faith, the death of religion, and the beauty of a new kind of holiness. So to get you there, uh, we're going to go to the scripture. I'll put it up on the screen. John chapter 12 says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it onto Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled, smell it, with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would labor, later betray him, objected. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. 
So like I said, this is a story we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, and so we're going to take the second look at it. And in order to get us into it, I think what, when I read this, it sort of reminds me uh, of sort of a childlike faith. Kids have an incredible faith in, in their parents. They have an incredible desire to please and find approval in their parents. If you don't know this, just go to a restaurant with a baby and then watch as somebody, somebody always has the bright idea to take the lemon out of the water glass and you know what's coming, then they hand it to the baby. And everybody has seen this at some point or another when somebody thought, you know what would be really funny is to see what the baby does with the lemon wedge. And the baby trusts these parents. The baby has unconditional faith in their parents and the baby, these lovely babies, babies take the lemon wedge and they put it in their mouth and then what is the face they make? First time they've ever tasted that. Now we all know that the best babies don't just make the face, they look at the, the lemon wedge and they take, a, they take it right back in. Those are the best kind of babies. But as children grow, they begin to be wary of parents. As you know, broccoli gets shoved in front and that's I'd like dino nuggets, please. And it becomes this growing thing. And so they actually shift their unconditional faith from their parents. It shifts over to their friends. And now we will trust anything our friends tell us to do. Buddy, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? Yes. Cliffs are awesome. My friends are great. I'll do what I want to do. When I turned eight, I had my eight-year birthday party at uh, the local sports bar in San Antonio. This is long before the age of family-friendly Buffalo Wild Wings. This was like the derelict, degenerate sports bar of the neighborhood. Super dark, really dirty, smoke everywhere, and, and this is the kind of kid I was. So I said, I'd like to have my birthday at the sports bar. And my parents, being pretty incredible parents, or terrible parents, you decide. Mom, sorry, um, she listens to these, so sorry, Mom. Um, they said, yeah, let's go to the sports bar. So we got some friends together. We got a table in the middle of the sports bar, and, and here we are watching sports everywhere. And it was one of those great bars that has uh, peanuts, like just buckets of peanuts everywhere. It's not the kind of place where you need to be civil. So you take the peanuts, you open the peanuts out of the shell. They're shelled nuts. And then you drop the shell just anywhere you want because it soaks up all of the nastiness that comes with having a sports bar. And so you walk around this place and there's just peanut shells everywhere on the floor. And who knows how many months or years or lives they've been there. So because we're really smart and we're eight years old, I'd look at my cousin, my loyal cousin, my loyal, wonderful, wonderful incredible, naive cousin. And we say, you know what would be really cool? And he goes, I think this is going to be a great idea. I don't know what you're going to say, but I like it already. And we say, these root beers we have in these beer mugs that they gave us, because we want to be like the big guys drinking beer, but they said root beer and it tastes better, so we'll take it. What if we got this root beer mug and we scraped up all the peanut shells from the floor and we put it into the root beer mug and then someone drank it? And the unconditional faith of my cousin, he goes, this is an incredible idea. I volunteer as tribute. And so he comes forward and he's ready. And, and like the whole bar is like, he's not really going to do this, right? You don't know what's on this floor. And he goes, I'm going to totally do this. And he takes his four and a half ounces of root beer with his 75 years worth of peanut shells. And he bottoms up and he drinks the whole thing. And he slams it down like a real man. And everybody cheers. And it's the greatest moment of his life. And to this day, I, every time I think about it, my stomach turns just a little bit. As I think about how many cigarette butts he must have ingested in that moment. Pretty gross. But what unconditional faith in our judgment. The act was offensive, shameful, disgusting. The whole room started yelling, ah, oh, I can't believe he did that. He swells with pride. This is the exact same reaction when Mary pours the perfume on the feet of Jesus. It's offensive, it's disgusting. The whole room wails with derision. 
There's these two offenses that happen when Mary pours this perfume out. We talked about one a couple weeks ago. One, Mark tells us she broke this box. She broke it. She didn't put a dab out. She broke the box. It's unusable. So she pours all the perfume out, which is her family's life savings. She gives it all. She pours it out on his feet to which they say, what a waste. And they wail and they cry against her. The second thing is she deals with Jesus's feet. And I don't think I can impress upon you just how vile this act is, that she's dealing with his feet. This is the most demeaning, the most humiliating thing that can be done in this culture is to deal with someone else's feet. I cannot overstate the offense here, but I'm going to try. So if you thought the last story was gross, you buckle up. Imagine, imagine I just had a really long day. Actually, remember the last time you traveled? You had a really long day of travel. What is the thing about traveling where you smell bad at the end of doing nothing for all day? You're on a plane, you're driving to 10 hours in the road, and you get home and you get to the hotel, you get wherever you're getting, and you go, why do I, I just, I sat here for 10 hours. I was in an airplane. I was, I sat at the airplane. I ate Chick-fil-A in the airport. I sat on another airplane. I got home and I just smelled terrible. Like travel just makes you get like, it's just travel funk. It just smells. So here's where we are. Imagine with me that I've just had a nice long travel. I don't know where I came from, where I'm going, doesn't matter. I'm going home and I get home after 10 days of travel and 10 hours in the car. And I just have travel funk all over me. You can smell me if you want. It's terrible. But that's not enough for me. I get home and I come to my family and I see my wife and she goes, I'm so glad you're home because the yard is really needing some work. And I go, I'm here for you. I love you so much. I'm going out to the yard and it's a beautiful, bright, hottest day of the summer. And I take the lawnmower and I do all 0.44 acres as slow as I can to soak up the sun. And my travel funk gives way to a mowing funk and the sweat pours from every different angle and access point. And my shirt, which had travel funk stains, now has a second layer of mowing sweat stains, and it's getting grosser as we go. I come inside, and she says, honey, do you want to shower? And I say, showers are not for me. I have things to do. I go down to the basement where I find a humid room with a treadmill in it. And I go, you know what I want to do is I want to run on this treadmill for an hour in this humid room with no ventilation. I will run like my life depends on it. And I run and my travel stench is then surrounded by my mowing stench. And on top of that is my treadmill stench. And now I'm just disgusting. And you're starting to think that's a little gross. I finish my run and I'm toweling off, probably just with my shirt because I'm just so effervescent with manliness. I come up to the main floor, and my wife says, you've done such a great job. Please feast with us at the table. Come eat dinner. You've earned it. I sit down at the dinner table. My children around me, I'm reclining in my glory. And she goes, honey, I think there's more to be done here. I'd love to honor you. You've worked so hard for us. And she makes her way around the table over to my chair where I'm reclining in my glory, and she begins to roll up my short sleeve. It's dripping with sweat and toxic masculinity. And she holds my arm up and she says, let me wash your armpits for you. To which all of you go, this has taken a terrible turn. She puts some dry shampoo on it. I don't even know what that is, but women use it. Sprays a little perfume. Breathes in deep. She goes, I think, I think we've honored you appropriately, but there's one last thing I'd like to do. While you eat with your left hand, honey, leave that right arm up, and I will braid your armpit hair ever so gently. Can I stop? Please. 
Somebody at the first service said, how do you think that went? And I said, we'll see if I'm back next week. (laughs) It's pretty disgusting. And I don't think that quite approaches what's happening in this room with Mary and these feet. In a land of heat and dust and no hygiene where animals scatter their waste around and the people must walk through it, Mary takes her most precious possession and she sits at the feet of Christ and begins to not only wash them in her most precious possession, but then take her hair and her hair, her crown, she begins to wipe those feet. This was a no-go zone. You weren't even allowed to ask slaves to unlatch your sandals. It was against rabbinical law. Even servants have rights greater than what Mary goes down to do. She lets her hair down to wipe his feet. And the context here is important. In that culture, a woman could be divorced for letting her hair down in mixed company. But the law was that she was to reserve that for her family only. And so her husband and her immediate family were the only ones who would ever see her hair. It was this crown. It was this gift. It was this representation of all of her love and her intimacy. And so when she takes her hair down in mixed company, the gasping gets louder and the protests get louder. And what are you doing? And somebody stop her. She is withholding nothing from Jesus. We live in a world of compartmentalized faith and Sunday faith, and we want a merry faith. It says, I will hold nothing back. She is evidencing an unconditional faith. It reminds me of David dancing like a fool, not caring who sees him. David dancing in front of God. It reminds me of the father-daughter dance. As you walk through that room and you see a bunch of us fools dancing with our daughters, unconcerned about what other people think. We will dance with the one that we love. Mary says, I reserve nothing. I hold nothing back from my king. Not even something as precious as my dignity, my reputation, or the thing that is reserved for my husband and my family. I will hold it not back from you, Lord. I give you all of myself. She uses her most precious crown and uses it on his most filthy part. As if to say, even my greatest bits are beneath you. And I think it's in this moment that we truly see the death of religion. We see the death of religion and culture as it is. As you watch the disciples walk with Jesus, they're still in earning mindset. They're still in a a Judaistic mindset of going, how do we earn? What's the price? What do we have to do? Jesus, how do I get to be your right hand? How, How do we do it? Just tell me what to do, do, do. And Mary is the first one that says religion is over and there's a whole new thing happening. Mary takes us on this shift from religion to relationship where she says it isn't about doing, it's about being. Religious people give, even give radically to earn favor or reward or wealth. Mary, I think, might be the first person who gives in order to lose. She gives her family heirloom and security. It is gone. Her security is now totally in Jesus. She anoints Jesus' feet and she gives away her dignity. It is gone. Her dignity is completely left in Christ. She lets down her hair and she gives it away to worship him. She is willing to be reviled if it adds even an ounce of glory to Christ. Tim Keller says, religious people go to God's feet, but they don't let their hair down. Religious people go to God's feet, but they don't let their hair down. I think what he's saying is they approach with confidence. Those who are willing to let their hair down, those who have gotten beyond religion and are living in something greater in relationship with Christ, are willing to approach him with a different kind of confidence. 
Not a timidity that says, have I earned my way into your presence, but a confidence that says, you invited me here and I here I am, Lord. Mary goes with a familial intimacy. That's what that picture is. When she lets her hair down, she's not saying you're a stranger. She's saying, I give you everything and you are but family to me now. Religious people in the room are wildly offended. Sometimes when I pray for our church, I hope we are the type of church that wildly offends religious people. Maybe be that kind of church that loves so radically, that dives into the mess so wholeheartedly that the religious among us would go, oh, I don't know about this. And we would go, that's exactly what we're here to do. Mary is dealing personally with Jesus. And what we find when we deal personally with Jesus is, is the opposite of what we find when we deal with religion. Religion creates fundamentalists and fanatics and rules and regulations. And Jesus says in relationships, you have freedom. And you have freedom to run and to chase and to love. You have freedom to sit at my feet and be with me. Religion creates the absence of those things. So Mary lets her hair down in opposition to all the cultural and religious rules. And she has total freedom because she gets it. She gets it. She may be the first person to get it. In religion, we exist to get God's blessing and approval. In relationship with Jesus, we have God's blessing and his approval because we exist. In religion, we exist to get God's blessing and approval. In relationship with Christ, in true Christianity, in true following of Christ, we have his blessing and approval simply by existing in relationship. So often we hold back on our faith journey. We, we hang on to some scrap of our dignity or our identity or our worth, and we go, I just want to hold this back just in case. Around my house, there are times that my wife will ask me to do something. And then she will read my face. She will know by my reaction that I do not want to do that thing. Different things at different times. But honey, will you do this? And, and when she sees my face go, oh. She knows the way to turn the key. And she goes, if you love me, you'll do it. To which at times I've been known to respond in song. And I say something along the lines of, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. The great meatloaf, everybody. Rest in peace. Okay, so um, we don't sing here often for a reason. It's conditional. I would do anything for love. Hey, uh, there's a clog down there. and they get, Nope, 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 won't do that. That's okay. I'm out. And we live with that conditional faith that I'll do anything for love, Jesus. I'll do anything for you. How about you lay this down? Whoa, hey, <laughs> anything else? Okay, we're still, still buds though, right? And Jesus is like, you're singing me meatloaf. It's not going to work. And we, we come to Jesus often with this one thing held back, with this one piece kept to ourselves, with this little bit of dignity, a little bit of identity. I know you want me to be identified in you, but I kind of like the thing I've created for myself. Mary displays an unconditional paradoxical faith. She had incredible confidence to approach Jesus and wild humility to sit at his feet. Incredible confidence to approach Jesus and the wild humility to still sit at his feet. See, everyone else was working the room, but Mary was sitting at his feet. And we always see Mary at his feet when we see her in Scripture. When we see Mary in Luke chapter 10, Martha's running around serving, and where's Mary? She's at his feet. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died, Mary and Martha say the same thing to Jesus. 
They both say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But the scripture says that Mary says so and then falls at Jesus' feet, that she takes a submissive posture even in her anger. To which I would say, faith evidence there is not how you feel, but where you sit. Faith is not how you feel, but where you sit. When you are angry at God, you are welcome to be angry at God. But in a submissive posture, that's not the problem. We don't lose our faith because we're angry at God. We lose our faith because we refuse to sit at his feet anymore. Jesus' response in that story is Lazarus has died and Mary falls at his feet and says, if you'd have been here, he'd have died. And she submits to him in that moment. The scripture says in one of the most profound and shortest passages in your Bible, it says, Jesus wept. That her submission provoked an intense emotional reaction in him. Like maybe he thought she gets it. So we find her in this story in this room where we're sitting at his feet again and she's splashing perfume on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair and it is like the culmination of all these ideas she's picked up along the way. Like maybe she finally has the whole picture of who Jesus is and it started to become clear. And we would summarize it by saying this, Christianity is not about what you do, but where you sit. If we learn nothing else from Mary today, we learn that Christianity is not about what you do, it's about where you sit. Mary shows us the end of religion, the end of the era of doing, and the beginning of the era of being. And in doing so, she also ushers us into a beautiful new holiness. Remember, the presence of God in this day was kept from the people. The people were not judged to be uh, able to take the presence of God. And so it was kept inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, behind a thick curtain, so, so thick you could shout at the front and not hear it on the back. And behind that was kept the presence of God. Not the priest could go in. No, only the high priest could go and attend to it. Everyone else had to stay behind a buffer. You could not approach God in that way. To be holy meant separate. That's all holiness means, the separateness. And so God is kept separate from the people. He's kept holy from the people. And Mary's shocking intimacy with Jesus is the ushering in of a beautiful new holiness. Like she gets it that holiness is no longer to be kept exclusive beyond us. Holiness is now an invitation for us. That she, through her belief in Christ, has been invited into the presence of the most holy, in the presence of God himself. And at this moment, many are still skeptical and confused. Jesus is telling them that he's going to be buried, he's going to take up a cross, he's going to be resurrected on the third day, the temple will be rebuilt, and they are looking at him like he is crazy. Not Mary. Not Mary. She basically looks at him and says, you mean we'll be able to sit in God's holy presence? And he says, you are. To which she takes the perfume and she pours it on his feet and she wipes it with her hair and she goes, oh, you are worthy. She goes all in. Anybody here play poker? No one ever admits to playing poker in church. (laughs) In No Limit Poker, you have the option, should you like your hand enough or you like your ability to bluff enough, you can push all your chips into the middle of the table. It's called going all in. It's a willingness to risk everything you have on your chance that you are going to win. It evidences a complete belief that either your hand or your bluff can't be beat, and it's also a willingness to lose everything if it is. This is what Mary does. She pours out her perfume. She goes all in. Every chip to the middle, she goes, I have a hand that can't be beaten. She lays it out there. She washes his feet and she knows in the moment she looks like an undignified fool in front of everybody in the room. She has left herself nowhere to hide. She shows a willingness to lose everything. Why? 
Because belief gives us the radical confidence to sit at Jesus' feet in the presence of his holiness. Belief gives us this. Belief is that invitation into his holiness. Belief gives us the radical confidence to sit at his feet in the presence of his holiness. The thing that no religion can do. No other system of belief says you are invited into the presence of God's holiness, not as some distant being, but as a familiar, intimate expression of love. Every other religion creates a pathway of works. Christianity says the work has been done. And true belief leads us to go all in. To give up the things that we've loved before. To give up the lesser things that don't compare. To lose our security, our reputation, our dignity, even our relationships. To lose them for the sake of Christ. A relationship of unconditional love invites that. A relationship of unconditional love invites that we lose everything else for its benefit. Think of the unconditional love relationships in your life. They invite you to set everything else aside. I said about the father-daughter dance. You walk through the father-daughter dance and you see a bunch of undignified fools dancing with little girls in dresses. It is a picture of undignified love. I'm not immune from the desire for the respect of my peers, the admiration of those that might call me pastor. And yet, one Saturday night, once a year, you will find me in there dancing with my daughters. My 10-year-old this year decided she is too cool for school and she is out. We started dancing and she goes, yeah, I think I'm going to go check on the cupcakes. And she would come back and check every so often. She'd go, nope, not for me. You guys have fun. So it was just me and my six-year-old. In Brixton, she can cut a rug, okay? And she's got all kinds of energy. And we were making up dances on the fly. We were doing the pepperoni pizza. You know this one? She taught it to me on the fly. I didn't know she knew it. She didn't know either, but we made it up and it was good. And she's like, yeah, get the sauce. Get the sauce. Uh-oh. Oh, you put it on the pizza, Dad. Uh-oh. Here comes the cheese. Sprinkle the cheese. Sprinkle the cheese. And we're sprinkling the cheese together. And I'm looking around at all of my peers, just like you're looking at me right now going, what is he doing? That guy? Okay. When you're done sprinkling the cheese, you got to add the pepperoni. You can put them on this way if you're really good with the pepperoni. You could sprinkle them over your shoulder if you want to, and then you put it in the oven, and you slam the oven door shut, and you got to do some other dance. You do a spin or two, and you bring it back out of the oven, and then you got to eat it, and you're eating the pizza. And all the while, my 10-year-old is over on the wall being like, oh, Lord, I'm never coming again. My life is over. My six-year-old says, Dad, this is awesome can you teach other people this dance? And I said, honey, I need to keep my job, okay? (laughs) I know I look ridiculous. I know. I'm fully aware. I'm fully aware that my peers are all around me, and any of them can look at any moment and see me throwing the dough or adding the pepperoni and wonder what in the world is wrong with me. These are people whose respect I desire. It is nothing compared to the love I have for my children. Nothing. You think whatever you want. If she knows and feels unconditional love, I don't care. I'm going to make as many pepperoni pizzas as I have to once a year. And when we got home, we went to a wedding like two weeks later. Guess what she said? Dad, let's make some pepperoni pizzas. And I was like, okay. (laughs) If dignity is lost making pizzas with my daughter on the dance floor, I never wanted it anyway. When you are dancing with the one you love, the whole world fades away. It is separate. 
and it is lost. And I don't want it. It is worthless compared to the love you have. When you have unconditional love, it is something that says dignity is no longer needed. I have love. When is the last time you were undignified for Jesus? When is the last time that you felt compelled to do something because of your relationship with Jesus, to do something for Jesus, to do something with Jesus that religious people might sneer at? When is the last time you were undignified for Jesus? When's the last time you let your hair down in front of God? We have to ask ourselves if we are becoming the religious people. We tell stories about Pharisees and we look down our noses at Pharisees and if we put ourselves in the time of Jesus, guess who the Pharisees were? They were the really good attending church people. And we have to be on guard all the time that we never become those people that we never start doing for God instead of being with God? Are you working the room? Are you sitting at his feet? I am profoundly grateful for Mary's example. It's a faith that goes all in with wild confidence and total humility, and it is a beautiful reflection of Jesus's love for us. Mary's love was just a reflection of Jesus's love that came first. Before Mary ever broke her perfume jar and gave up security, Jesus gave up security of heaven to come and be broken for us. Before Mary ever humbled himself at Jesus's feet, Jesus humbled himself, got off the throne, and came to be born in a manger for us. Mary is reflecting Jesus' love back. From throne to manger to criminal's cross, Jesus gave up everything, became undignified for us. He took the cross with wild confidence and total humility, and he allowed himself to be tortured and crucified and mocked and beaten and buried for us. Why? Because in the face of unconditional love, none of that other stuff matters. With unconditional, undeniable love, Jesus walked the earth for us. And his love then invites us to believe, to enter into his holiness and find our life in his. So the question for you today is, do you truly believe that? Do you believe in Jesus as Savior? Like not to add this to my list kind of thing and not to add that to the file of things that might make me better and not to do some self-help and so maybe I'll add some Jesus to my life and not a great philosopher and not a great teacher, but a Savior. Do you believe that? If not, There's no day like today to start. Following Jesus doesn't mean we don't hold doubts. It doesn't mean we don't have fear. It doesn't mean that we don't still have skepticism. It doesn't mean any of that. Following Jesus means we're willing to see what life is like in the presence of holiness. One of the prime reasons I believe that people won't follow Jesus is we're afraid to be in his holiness. Because deep down we recognize that we're not holy. And so being in his holiness will expose all the things that are ugly and dirty about us. And what he says is, come on in. It's clean in here that I am your holiness, that you in me, you're clean. And we don't have to fear what we're bringing to the table. Jesus says, I've already brought it. That religion is dead and relationship is new and you can enter into my beautiful new holiness and the cost is belief. And belief is the invitation to let go of religion and find relationship, to willingly open your hands and say, Jesus, I will follow. I don't even know how much of this I believe, but I'm willing to follow and see where it leads. Because no one starts a relationship with Christ with perfect belief. We start because that thing in the pit of our stomach, the Holy Spirit working in us says, you got to be a part of this. That there is hope there and there is life there and you got to do it. If you're already following Jesus, the question for you is, are you all in? Are your chips in the middle of the table? Are you holding some back just in case? Are you still trying to work your way in or earn your place? Do you need to remember that Christianity is not about what you do, but where you sit? 
We sit at the feet of a God who calls you loved and approved and found and free. In a culture where we wonder if anyone loves us, if we have to work a little harder for approval, we feel lost and we feel bound. He says you are loved and you are approved and you are found and you are free. So may we find ourselves at the feet of this Jesus. May we find ourselves more impassioned than ever, willing to be undignified because he was first undignified for us. May we chase him with everything we have because he is an undeniable savior with an unconditional love for you. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the beauty of your word and the stories that inspire I'm grateful for the undignified Mary. Father, her willingness to lay everything out there to be completely undignified for you. Father, I long to have that sort of faith and I would confess that there are probably more days than not that I'm pulling chips back and hoping to work it out myself. I'm hoping to be self-sufficient. I'm still trying to be my own savior. There are days, God, that I don't trust you like I want to. Father, I pray that today would be a turning point, not just for me, but for everyone in here. That we would be able to recognize where we're not all in. We'd recognize the places we've held back from you. That, Father, we would open our eyes, we would open our arms, and we would truly seek you in relationship. Father, you would reveal your unconditional love for us, and God, we would return that with an unconditional faith. Father, thank you for the invitation of belief pray for the people in the room who even right now are considering what that might mean and what it might change in their life. Lord, remind us what you say of us. Remind us that in you we are approved, in you we are made whole, in you we are free, in you we are unbound. Father, find us. Save us. In Jesus' name, amen.